You're listening to The Snap Hook with Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Join us as we take a look at all things sports and politics in the world that we live in today. Yeah, I, I don't want to share a beer with the leader of the free world at the end of the day, right? Over 300 house races are non If you look through, it's been Republicans in charge. We try and help you understand the political news by comparing it to our sports stories of the day. And just like a snap hook, we're coming in from the left side of the fairway. People who are in control of things decide this person has displeased us. Welcome back into the snap hook, you snap hook listeners. I, I again am Tim Costello, and he, as always, is Scott Barzilla. Oh, it's great to be with you guys uh, today. We're going to make a snap hook brought to you by the letter J, the number twelve, and gaps. Today is going to be all about gaps. So, and one of the things that we've actually, and I cannot believe this, uh, that Greg Abbott has not invaded our classrooms before now, but. Uh, we have taught media bias in our classes, and we actually have a chart that shows media bias. And, the, and our first gap that we're talking about is the information gap and the fact that some people are just very ill-informed, basically just to, um, to put it simply. And so when we taught the media bias, most people think left and right, and that makes perfect sense. But in the media bias chart we teach there's actually two axes. There's left versus right, but there's also reliable versus unreliable. And I think, you know, and we, you've heard us say this over and over again, if you've listened to all the episodes, but I think the number one lie that gets told is both sides do it. I mean, that's, that's, you know, the narrative that I think is out there. And I think this is where the information gap comes into play, because if you look at the media bias graph, unfortunately, we're a podcast. We can't show you this visually, but you can look it up. It's not symmetrical. There are more on the right-hand side, and there are more on the unreliable on the right-hand side. But they'll tell you that the media is liberal. And it's funny how they get to play both sides. So I don't know if you got a chance to look at that today, but you know, it certainly is eye-opening for our students. Yeah, I, I've seen it a lot as well before, um, and it is, it, it's something that is is a skill in and of itself, and I think that's one of the main reasons education is so important, Scott, is as you, you become higher educated, you learn how to source information, and you learn how to make sure that the information you're getting is accurate and reliable, and, you know, sadly... Uh, a lot of these disinformation campaigns really do take advantage of the undereducated and the, um, you know, the people who, you know, kind of stopped after high school um, because it's, it's, if you're not willing to do the research and look into some of the things that you hear out there and you just take everything at face value, uh, it's a, it's a pretty dangerous world to live in right now. And it's something that as, as people gain more education, you have to write certain papers and you, and you become interested in things that you hear in a classroom or, you know, even 
you see a movie and you're like, I want to learn more about that. And you just know how to research certain topics. You be, become better versed in what is a quality source, pardon me, versus, you know, who is somebody who is essentially writing fan fiction. Um, and so when, when we look into it that way, I, I think it's, you're right, it is eye-opening. But also it, it does kind of allow you to kind of see where some of these issues come in. Um, you know, with the information gaps, with the knowledge, and combine it with a knowledge gap um, of, of why some of the things that are happening right now are happening. And I know you come from a journalism background. Um, I, I did. I wrote for my college newspaper. I, I was a journalism major for about a minute uh, my freshman year, uh, and I ended up moving to political science. And so the whole idea of gaps, and we're going to get into all kinds of gaps in this episode, and, and gaps from a academic point of view is actually you know quite fascinating but there are two kinds of biases that we're looking at and, and those of you in journalism know this full well but some people who may not you know who are not in journalism may not know there is a bias of what stories do we choose to hype and every journalistic outlet is biased in some way they have to be we're humans we have to physically pick if we're doing a newspaper what story goes above the fold? What story goes below? Uh, if we're doing a news show on television, we have to pick which story we lead off the whole newscast with. We have to pick, you know, what are we doing, you know, on a night in, night out basis. We've talked in episodes in the past about the relay effect of when you're watching 24-hour news, how we pass it from this host to this host to this host, who talks about the same thing. And then the other form of bias is are we telling the truth are we are we dealing in facts so in some cases we're dealing in facts but maybe we're omitting certain facts and in some cases we just might be over hyping you know a certain story and, and the, really the conversation and those of y'all go to youtube um the conversation i saw on this was between rachel maddow and john stewart and Rachel Maddow was interviewing John Stewart, and John Stewart is basically saying, you know, I study climate. He looked at the whole news cycle as a climate. And he was talking about the relay effect. And he was talking about the fact of, listen, you know, I'm different. He says, I have, you know, puppets making crank phone calls on the show after mine. He says, so I, there is no relay effect from the Daily Show to anything else. You know, whereas Fox News, relay effect, MSNBC, relay effect. And I was having a conversation with my daughter last night, and it was actually, you know, brought up, you know, a perfect example of this. Jeffrey Epstein. Everybody knows who that guy is. And she's like, hey, did he commit suicide or was he murdered? And why do we care? And it's like, that's an excellent question. Because how long ago was this? But we keep hitting this story over and over and over again. And we sit there and say, well, Donald Trump knew him. The Clintons knew him. Prince Albert knew him. Does that mean that he was definitely getting them underage children for them to abuse? Yeah, maybe. But that's the assumption that gets to be made whenever we sit there and say, well, they knew him. And we don't really give you any more facts than that. And we get to sit there and make up things like, well, maybe some ninjas came down to the jail and killed them. So we keep the story alive because we need to keep certain stories alive in order to maintain your interest. 
And we could dive down to a lot of different rabbit holes, but that's basically the two areas of bias that we're looking at in the news. And I think if we want to look for maybe some TV or movie representations of those two biases, I think, you know, first and foremost, I don't know if you've seen uh, Aaron Sorkin's The Newsroom, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I... I'm hit or miss with Aaron Sorkin. There was a time where, you know, I loved The West Wing. It was one of my favorite shows. And then, um, as I've, I've seen, uh, two straight Democratic administrations have real West Wing brain and not be able to get things actually done, I've, I've fallen less out of love with the show. But the thing about Aaron Sorkin is he's very altruistic. And in his mind, it's going to work out his way, and this is how life should be. So as he's putting out the show, The Newsroom, it's, you know, in his mind, this is what news should be. And it's less about what are people wanting to see and it's more about what do people need to know what is the news that's going to have the biggest effect on your life and you can kind of see that thought process played out a little bit more there and then another great example i feel like i don't know if you've ever seen the movie nightcrawler um with jake gyllenhaal but it is about a guy um, who sells accident footage to the news and eventually he starts to realize the same formula that you're talking about, the um, the relay effect, as well as, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, and things along that nature to the point where I don't want to, you know, spoiler effect for anyone who's listening, uh, if you haven't seen Nightcrawl and you want to, but eventually he ends up creating a situation where he knows what will play out. He will be in place to watch the murders and deaths happen and have cameras there ahead of time because he wanted to make the money to uh, sell those tapes to the news. And he understood the scenario so well that he was able to, you know, push one domino in action and have the camera rolling the whole time uh, and sell the greatest news footage of all time to the local news team. Um, But it's both of those, I feel like, are great representations of, of what you're talking about, Scott, where there are legitimately two different types of biases when it comes to what you're choosing to put on television uh, and then also, um, you know, what you're not choosing as well to put on television to go along with it. Yeah, and I think you probably sat through your your very first journalism class because that was probably the only journalism class I took where the professor asked that basic question where you're a photographer, you see somebody who wants to commit suicide jumping off a bridge So, do you prevent the suicide, or do you take the picture of the guy committing suicide? And I don't know if y'all got that question in, like, your basic, like, ethics, you know, journalism ethics classes, but that was, you know, one of the opening questions we got. And, you know, that movie, obviously, is just taking that to, you know, its logical extreme. And I did enjoy the newsroom, Um, you know, in the... Uh, binge watching, uh, you know, marathon. I was able to finish it, you know, I think over Christmas break, you know, just this last year, watching all three seasons, you know, catching up. And everybody's seen that iconic, you know, uh, that iconic. America's not the greatest, not the yeah. greatest country in the world. Exactly. You know, everybody's probably seen that clip. And, you know, but you can look on left and right, but mostly right. And this is the kind of the point I'm making. I'm just going to make a confession. I'm never going to vote for Hunter Biden. It doesn't matter what he's running for. I'm not voting for him. Could be dog catcher. Could be mayor. Could be president. Hunter Biden's not getting my vote. Um, If this were a... We never really decided whether 
what the opposite of snapbook would be goose slice. I, I don't know, but if that was our program, you know, maybe Hunter Biden would be my scumbag of the week. If we were coming back, you know, later on. The program. Well, hey, we're, we're, te- we're teasing a new segment here, you know, <laughs> coming up at the end of the, the episode. You know, a little Biden, <laughs> new segment. Yeah, Hunter Biden's not my scumbag of the week. Um, but he might be, but he's never been on a ballot. So why do we care about his laptop? But we hear about it every damn day. Every damn day. And the thing is, there's, you know, obviously serious chain of custody issues with that thing. It was, you know, lost for, I don't know, two, three years before anybody got a hand on it. You know, so anybody could have added anything to this machine. Who knows? Maybe he knows where Jimmy Hoffa was buried. You know, that would be great if he did. But that's a great example of a current story, which everything that they say may be true especially if you leave out certain facts like chain of custody. But the question is, how important is it really? Do we really, does the average American care about Hunter Biden? He doesn't hold any elective office. Unlike Trump's kids, he's not working in the White House. So what are we doing? Yeah, it's, what's frustrating is you're absolutely right. And it's, and there's, I think there's two ways to look at it. And, and there really are. Number one, I personally, I don't care. I'm with you. He's not running for anything. He has, you know, not really sought public office. If he's doing some tasks for his dad, that's one thing. Whatever. You know, he's a private, at this point, he's a private citizen with a famous parent. Um, and, and, and you have a right to privacy if you don't put yourself in the public spotlight. But the really, I think the interesting point is, number two, let's say, let's theoretically say everything on that laptop is true. And there was quid. There's quid pro quo in in Ukraine. We already have proven Donald Trump had the same quid pro quo for aid. We took it to court. It was proven that they don't care about that. He he was he was uh, acquitted of his impeachment charge. So the Republican Party have shown that they don't care if there's a quid pro quo. So why do we care now? And at the end of the day, it's there's a lot of. Um, we talk about the gap. There's, there's such an information gap and a such such a time gap from where it's not important to when all when all of a sudden it's the most important thing in the entire world. And it, you, I mean, you look at like Lauren Boebert or or Marjorie Taylor Greene. If you look at them, they're typically like like eight hours behind the normal news cycle is when they start to make a big deal out of things that have been public knowledge for like eight to nine hours. And they start talking about why is no one talking about this? This is another cover up. This is you know liberal media not letting you know. And it's like if you if you choose to plug yourself in, then you know. If you live in one of those silos like we talked about last week, where the only news you watch is Fox and OAN and Newsmax, then no, they haven't they haven't talked about these things. So then you think, oh no, no one's talking about this, and you live in this self sustaining ecosystem where. You can continually squawk and talk about how the, the Biden administration's not doing this or the Biden administration's doing, you know, blocking blocking media coverages or making channels be dropped from DirecTV or AT&T. But at the end of the day, if you made sure that you were plugged in the right sources, you would you would know what's going on. But they know that. And they also know that the people who follow them on Twitter are not plugged into the right sources. And so they can make these claims. Um 
but also one of the reasons they can make these claims, Scott, is, you know, another one of the gaps we were talking about this week is, is the knowledge gap, because there's such a, a, a large gap in what we think we know and what actually happened. And it's a frustrating scenario as if you're someone who's, you know, inclined to want to learn more about history after you get out of your traditional education, the more that you reach out and find new information and reach out for more sources that aren't, you know, Texas school board approved, uh, the more you realize we weren't taught what actually happened. And it, it's like this feeling of you're being told a fairy tale your whole way through school. And then, and then if you choose to learn a little bit more about things, it's, it's not really how it went down. And so, you know, that really led us into a lot more of the discussions with gaps that we're having today was, was our, just was kind of our original thought process of there is this, this huge knowledge gap that most of our young Americans are, are realizing right now, but the older Americans are, are still sticking to their previous thought process of this is the real story and there's no other way to change it, no matter what new information comes out. Um, and, and I think that, that gap, that divide in our, our thought process is, is not good for our country. And that knowledge gap that we're just continually ignoring and not wanting to address in our schools um, is, is really putting people on, on different ends of the spectrum and forcing them to dig their heels in on something that should be a non-issue. You should want to, at the end of the day, uh, you know, the NFL instigate, in, instigated instant replay because they just want to get the call right. And, and that's what history is. If you're teaching history, you just want to get it right. Teach what happened. This is not creative writing class. This is history class. Yeah, and I think there's two phenomenon that I could, that I see really going on. And and there was a great cartoon that I saw that really um, that highlights this. And it shows you know 30 years ago, this kid in his desk in high school civics class just sunked out asleep. And now 30 years later, he's you know you know some kind of you know constitutional scholar. We'll put that in air quotes. Because the whole thing is he didn't pay attention in civics class. He has no idea what's in the Constitution. So you kind of have that going on. And that actually started happening uh, with the Tea Party. So the Tea Party was, you know, right around when Obama became president. Because suddenly, you know, Bush spending a lot of money, uh, that's okay. You know, this black guy spending a lot of money, holy, holy crap, man, we, got, we can't let that, allow this to happen. So that's kind of the first phenomenon. The first phenomenon is all these people who didn't pay a lick of attention to politics, didn't pay a lick of, lick of attention to history. All of a sudden, whoa, this is the worst that's ever been. It's like, well, no, actually, if you paid a little bit of attention, maybe it wasn't. And then the second phenomenon is, and I don't know how old your parents are. My parents are, my dad's going to turn 80 next year. So these are a group of people who were raised before the internet, before the fairness doctrine was struck down. And so when they came of age and they're watching the news, they had an expectation that, okay, this is really happening. Walter Cronkite says it's happening. Then, well, it's happening. Well, now you have the internet. You've got all these different cable networks that may or may not be telling you the truth and these older Americans sorry to say they're not as able to differentiate between fact and fiction 
as people maybe our age. And then, of course, we're separated, uh, you and I, by about 15 years, I'd say, uh, in age, thereabouts, maybe 20. Um, so there's a difference between our generations. Y'all's generation is probably a little bit more savvy than our generation is. Uh, because when I was in high school, that was when the internet was first really getting started. And so there really wasn't that um, just a huge internet wave of all these kind of different sites where people could go down rabbit holes and think, you know, well, I'm doing my research by throwing it in the Google machine and seeing what spits out. You got to be a little bit more discerning than that. And I think the younger population is a little bit more discerning than that because they're a little bit more savvy than we are and certainly people my parents' age. No, you're absolutely right. It's, I think the internet plays a huge part of it. My parents are both in their 60s um, and know how to use their computer, know how to use the internet, but I don't think they know how to source articles and, and you know, make sure that, hey, let's let's kind of look who's funding this this website that I've never heard of before. And, oh, wait, what do you know? It's, it's you know, crazy far-right uh, anti-vax group. Okay, this is not a good article to read. You know, that's something that they don't necessarily do. And that's, you know, it's not that they should be expected to, because I think you're right. Different generations grew up, you know, the news was the truth. There was a time where that was the expectation that you were being told, um, you know, that's the way it is. That's the way the cookie crumbles. You know, whoever signature sign off you want to go with, um, that's that's what we're being told. So, and what do you think about that knowledge gap in schools, though? That's the one I really want to kind of get into because, um, you know, I, what, what really kind of started off for me, I'm 32 years old. Uh, you know, the movie Titanic came out when I was seven. So I, I, I never really saw Titanic. You know, big, big confession here. Um, I'd never really seen the movie Titanic start to finish. So I took my wife. Uh, on Friday night, they had the re-release of the, the movie for the 25th anniversary, and I sat and I watched Titanic for the first time. And and I, I know the movie is not factually 100% accurate, things like that, but what really got me thinking was the, the wealth gap, uh, the way that the elite were treated on that ship and the way that the poor were treated on that ship. And now, obviously... Hollywood movie, highly embellished, things of that nature. But when you, you start looking at things, it wasn't that embellished as far as uh, the way lower class people were treated at that time. And then, and then you start to look at some of the numbers, Scott, and, and you start to look at the, the gap in wealth that existed in America in the, the teens and in the 20s. And then you start to look at the wealth gap that exists in America today. The, the percentage of people that own the, the percentage of wealth are, are highly skewed and, and they were very similar to those days of robber barons. Um, and for those of you who don't know, you know what the robber baron was, that think of it as 1910, 1915's Elon Musk. Somebody that you know, comes in with you know, a lot of in, you know, fake money, essentially at times, you know, backed by stocks or whatever it is, buys a company, pilfers it dry, takes advantage of the workers, and makes a huge profit for themselves. They're making a ton of money. They're cutting jobs left and right. They're cutting costs left and right. And the rights of the worker are going down while this one person is making a ton of money. So while you can say the economy 
is good, this one person is doing well and the rest are not. Um, and obviously through a lot of different policies and regulation and, and hard fought battles by unions, we got away from the age of robber barons. Um, but I personally, after watching the movie Titanic, looking at that information gap that we just don't talk about this in school. It's one chapter in a history book. How We talked about the term robber baron and then that's it. We're there again. You know, when you look at what these these billionaires do, how they go in and buy companies and strip it piece by piece and 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 just keep the profits. We're, we're right back to where we were because we didn't ever learn from the the information we were never actually given. Uh, well, th just a couple of stories on this. I told a, a, a joke on Facebook, and actually it wasn't really a, a joke. Um, it actually happened. Um, that movie came out in my first year teaching. So I remember my friend and I were sitting in the theater, and we're just like, you know, I wonder how they're going to do the technology to show the ship sinking. And this girl sitting behind us is like, why are you giving away the ending? And it's like, did you think you were coming to see the love boat? I mean, what, what did you think this was? And, you know, so, yeah, some people just had no idea that the Titanic you know, actually existed and what it was and the whole thing. But I remember um, I taught government economics my first year teaching. And the guy across the hall, actually, he graduated from TCU with me. And he was teaching U.S. history. And so he decided, we're going to read the novel for the Titanic since the movie is out. So that was back in the days when we had end of course exams. He spent like nine weeks reading this damn novel. And so he didn't even get to World War II in U.S. history, the second half. And, you know, his kids all bombed the exam. And, and, you know, it's kind of, you know, one of those things in history. And that's, you know, as an older history teacher, I can remember back in the days when in elementary school, we used to do like these huge units over these parts of history. Like, and when I was in elementary, we used to re uh, recreate the Oregon Trail. And so we would all have bring like our little wagons and we'd all, we had kids that were supposed to be Indians and we had kids who were supposed to be the settlers and um, somebody was a leader and they were given like, you know, okay, this happened. Okay. You have to kill off one of your villagers. I remember I was like the old man in the village. So I was like dead within like five minutes. Um, but it was, you know, it was an interactive thing. Of course you played Oregon trail on the computers back in those days. And, you did these units. Like I remember uh, these other guys that I taught with, they would do like this big, huge re uh, recreation of JFK's assassination. And they made models out of like the limos. And so the kids could actually see like, you know, what was going on. You don't do those things in history anymore. There's a test at the end of the year. And, and of course we got into this when we were talking about, you know, critical race theory and things like that, but there's no time to dive into these things. There's no time to dive into the Titanic. There's no time to dive into like the things you were talking about where you have the poor people in steerage and you have, you know, the rich people, you know, which, you know, Billy Zane, I still think is the most hilarious character from the movie. I mean, he's like a cartoon of a, you know, of a villain. I mean, yeah, that, that's, just, yeah, that is one of the most cartoony real life performances I've ever seen in my entire life. 
I mean, it was just, he was just so ridiculous. I mean, he's actually beating Kate Winslet. I mean, you're just like, okay, come on. And then you hear that, you know, he lost all of his money in the crash and committed suicide. Of course he did. Of course he did. But you brought up the idea of the wealth gap. And this is something I think is dreadfully important because you brought up the very real historical comparison of when was the last time we had this wealth gap and what happened. And, and to give a sports analogy, because, you know, we, we like to tie these things into sports. Baseball has a huge disparity between the haves and the have-nots. And so there's a certain point where the game's not fun anymore. I mean, you're going to sit there and you're going to watch, let's say, the Mets, who have the highest payroll in baseball, take on the Oakland A's. Is that really entertaining? And so the problem with, and so baseball is going to have that problem, and this is the problem in society, where, okay, I'm in the 1%. I've got all this money, but everybody else doesn't have anything. And eventually they're not going to buy your stuff because they don't have the money to buy your stuff. And it's the same thing with baseball. Am I going to watch the Yankees play an inter-squad game? Am I going to care? That might actually be more entertaining than watching them, say, play the Tigers or, uh, or the Royals or you know whatever. And, but that's the problem with society when things get stratified like that, is that eventually, yeah, you can have all the money in the world, but if you're selling a widget, and I can't afford your widget because I'm poor, then what's going to happen to you? Yeah, it's it's frustrating because it's, it's, it's that combination of knowledge and, and, and the wealth gap because they, they obviously we talked about the Great Depression in, in high school growing up. It was mentioned, but it wasn't, we didn't talk really about what caused it. We didn't talk about um, what fixed it. We didn't talk about the hard work that the the unions did. We didn't talk about the government regulation that existed, and and we didn't talk about the we we didn't talk about what went into the New Deal to create government jobs, to create agencies that allowed people who had been out of work for years to go and document some of the historical things that have happened in this country that were facts that we're ignoring. We the, the New Deal paid for people to go out and talk to free slaves and write down their stories. And, and that's what government's job was. It was to provide opportunity for their people. Um, and because we forgot about that, we forgot about everybody having prosperity. We got into this greed is good mentality that, you know, the 1980s and, and Michael Douglas and Wall Street brought with them that, I'm going to get mine. You know, I, I don't care what my neighbor does. I don't care what the guy across the street does. I don't care that there's 15 homeless people under a bridge. I made another million dollars today. I bought a company and, you know, it doesn't matter that that company is going to have to lay off 20 people because I'm going to downsize them and just take their technology. That doesn't matter. I made more money today. Um, and that's, that's that we forgot about what happens when that happens, because we were never taught that. We were taught that there, you know, capitalist society is, is a gains, you know, gains and flows. It, it ebbs and flows. There's, there's periods of upturn, there's periods of downturn, and, you know, it, it just happens. It's just the way the economy works. Well, there's, there's indicators of why it happens that way. It's because there's greedy SOBs 
who continue to try and thwart the system to make themselves a little bit more money, and then they screw it up for everybody else. You can look at the, the 2008 downturn was because a couple greedy sons of bitches wanted to go play with the housing market and make a little extra money for themselves and were, and were writing loans left and right, and, and at the end of the day, what happens? Everybody gets burned because, like, 5,000 people were doing some really shady stuff. Is that is that fair to the rest of Americans? No. But do we know any better? Because we were never taught that this is what happens over and over again every time that there is a depression. It's because there's a group of rich, elite, wealthy people trying to take advantage and they screw it all up and then the government lets them go and say, hey, sorry, don't do that again. And, and, and then they go do it again. But we don't know that because it's never talked about. And this is where I want to tie some things together because you know, we, we've talked about the information gap, we've talked about the wealth gap. Here is where gaps become important. People are angry. And, in, and we've talked, and you just laid out reasons why they should be angry. But the problem is, is that when I don't have the information, I don't know who I'm supposed to be angry at. And so my anger gets misplaced. And so this is where the right really has this well played out in their heads. And so, and, and Linda Johnson talked about this way back in the 50s and 60s. So this is nothing really new. What he said was, is that if I'm, you know, if you're a poor white guy, I could rob you blind. And I could get you to turn around and I could get you to blame that black guy. And this is what we do on the right. We sit there and we fan out and we point the finger at all these other people who are the reason why you're angry and why you're upset, why you're not getting ahead. It's all these immigrants who are you know, invading our country across the border. It's all these people, you know, these welfare queens who are, you know, have 12 kids and are, you know, eating T-bone steaks with their food stamps, driving around in Cadillacs, which is what Reagan, you know, used to try and tell us. And so what ends up happening is that you're, you're upset because you feel like you should be further along in life. And in some cases, that is very much true. But the question is, why? Who is responsible for your lot in life? And so somebody tells me to be mad at somebody else when they're the ones robbing you blind. And so that's where the robber baron thing comes in too. It's like the robber barons, not only are they robbing you, they're sitting there, you know, patting you on the back and saying, hey, it was that guy that did it when they're holding your wallet. Do you know who, who Fred Hampton was? Yeah, I think I vaguely heard the name. He was so he was one of the the leaders of the Chicago Black Panther Party. And you know, you know shocker, he was murdered by the United States government. But in his short time of life, anyone who met Fred Hampton was inspired by the guy. I mean he was he was murdered before he was twenty five years old. He was the head of the Black Panther Party in, in Chicago. He fed more children uh, than, than anybody in Chicago with their breakfast program. And what he did is he figured out a way for the poor white people, the poor black people, and the poor Hispanic people of Chicago to all come together and realize 
we are not each other's enemy. We are, we are all cogs in this machine. We are all pawns on this chessboard that are being played against each other. And he was able to, to turn that back on, on the employers, on the government, and, and showcase some of the ways that the sleight of hand happens where they get us infighting with ourselves as citizens instead of looking at the people who are causing this issue. And, you know, so because of that, he was, he was drugged and murdered. The FBI had someone infiltrate the Black Panthers and drug his food, and then uh, they shot 100-and-something bullets into his apartment in the middle of the night and killed him. But he, and the movie on HBO about him is called uh, Jesus and the, uh, the Black Judas, I think it's called. It's about the, the gentleman who was the rat. But I, I highly recommend anybody look into this young man because I, I, I believe he's someone who would have ran for office, would have been a senator, a congressman, a, maybe a potential presidential candidate one day. And, and it, it, it's someone that pointed that out and they killed him for it. And it's something that no one looked at that. No one, no one said why. No one decided that he was right and we should continue to work that way. There's, there's, there's obviously groups and, and that's the, the goal of the United States society, but we're still having those same infights. And when you had someone figure out that this is the best way and we can all work together, it started making positive change and they killed him. And we haven't learned from that. And you know where I, I did not learn about Fred Hampton in the United States history? I learned that the, the Black Panthers were a terrorist group. And then the more that you look into them, they're uh, an, an organization that I personally admire. They, they held the police accountable. They kept citizens safe. They provided breakfast and, and child care for single, working, single parents who couldn't, and working parents who couldn't find that elsewhere. They were community leaders in their community, but they're portrayed in school as a terrorist organization because there are black people who are carrying guns around. Yeah, in California, you could not get Republicans to agree to gun control faster than when the Black Panthers started having guns. And, and I think, and, and to kind of continue moving this forward, because here's what, you know, and it's funny in history, I, I, I go into a world history class, is one of the classes I go into, and right now we're talking about the French Revolution. You think about what were the seeds of the French Revolution? And basically it was the fact that the peasants and the wealthy middle class, who were obviously not royals and not church, they all thought, okay, this isn't going the way we think it should go, but the government was set up in a way where their voice wasn't heard. So what ends up happening? Well, y'all know, know the story of the French Revolution. Hopefully, uh, you were taught that in school. But see, here's what's happening in, here in the United States. So you have a couple of different phenomena going on at the same time. Number one, the way that particularly the House and Senate, the Senate in particular, is set up. Wyoming has about 500,000 people. I think there are more people that live in the Clear Lake area than live in Wyoming. They have two senators. California, with over 50 million people, has two senators. So when you look at the United States Senate right now, it's split down, but it's 51-49 technically, although I don't know what you want to consider Kirsten Sinema. Um, just maybe like a unicorn, I, I don't know, maybe like a troll. Uh, but 
the 49 Republicans are represented are representing 30 million fewer people than those 51 Democrats and independents. And you got to, you know, you start thinking about that. And most people, well, it's not fair. And, you know, this state, and it's like, so what is more fair than one person and one vote? Everybody's vote should count equally. But what we see is we see that because of the way the mechanisms have, have been done, we see more Republican representation than we probably should. Uh, when we see gerrymandering in the House, we certainly see that because when you look at national, um, there were more people who voted for Democrats than Republicans in House races nationwide, but the Republicans control the House. How does that happen? You know, and I remember when Mitt Romney was saying, and Mitt Romney was saying this right, you know, when the uh, when the GOP was stealing another Supreme Court seat, when they put on Amy Coney Barrett like two minutes before the presidential election. He said that the United States is a middle right country. And it's like, really? What, what, what evidence do you have to support this? If you go back to 1992, in fact, you go back to, you know, after the 1988 election, the Republicans have literally won majority once in a presidential election. Once. That was in 2004. Not in 2000 when Bush became president. Not in 2016 when Trump became president. And so in every other election except for 2004, Democrats got more votes. Yet, look where we're at. Look where we're at in Congress. Look where we're at. And, and, and so that's why a lot of these things that, you know, those positive changes that people agree with can't happen. I agree with you, but also it, it depends on how you define center right. Because I, I kind of do think, uh, as a nation, uh, we do kind of sit center, center right. But I also think a majority of like the Republicans are far right at this point, and the Democratic Party is center right. Like I don't think the Democratic Party truly operates on the left anymore. Like the way that they handle law enforcement, the way they handle military spending. Uh, the way that they've just completely ignored women's rights, the way that they've completely ignored, you know, or refused to op act, act, defend immigrants. You know, there's a lot of things that human rights, like I just don't think the Democratic Party sits on the left anymore. So, um, and anytime there is legitimate left, like a legitimate left, the Demo like most Democrats find a way to crush them. Um, and so I, for that, I, I do kind of agree with Romney that, Sadly, I don't want it to be. I think we are a center-right country, but I think the Democrats are a center-right party. I, I don't think the Democrats are the left anymore. Yeah, I think if you were, particularly if you look at the, where the United States sits in the world, I think that's certainly true. Um, you know, in fact, you know, we talked about Bernie Sanders last, you know, last episode. And, you know, Bernie Sanders, if you want to look in retrospect to the entire world, is a moderate uh, he's he's not a leftist. He, he you know he he's you know he's probably got you know politicians in Europe particularly looking at him like you know you call yourself a progressive you know yeah, what are you talking about dude? I think in the American political mythos, I think we are not center right, and I think 
the proof is, and this is where the this is where the ideas of the gaps come in, is that when you start throwing out individual planks of things that the left supports and you don't attach right or left to it, most of the country agrees. Like if you were to talk about, you know, if you were just to talk about the whole idea of a single payer healthcare system, majority of Americans would, would go for that. As long as you keep out things like Medicare for all, and as long as you keep the labels out of it, majority of them is going to agree. If you want to sit there and talk about, you know, obviously with Roe v. Wade overturned, if you were to look at, you know, how many support a woman's right to choose? That's, that's a majority. Um, at least, you know, if you want to attach certain qualifiers to that, the numbers go through the roof. If you're looking at gun control, if you're looking at, you know, certainly waiting periods, if you're looking at, you know, assault weapons bans, um, if you're looking at certainly red flag laws, um, and if you're looking at how we choose to regulate corporations, a majority of the populations with the left. It's just when we see who's actually in Congress and we see how they're able to attach labels to it and we see how with the information gap we're able to mislead people, we're able to, you know, shoot them. No, no, no. The problem is not your healthcare system. The problem is that Hunter Biden's laptop. That's the problem. And so you're able to, it's almost like, you know, distracting a dog. You know, you start snapping and you start doing the stuff over here. I mean, that's that's what's literally going on, you know, with our press at this point. Uh, you're right. And I think it's it's a combination also, too, of what you mentioned with a, a states that have a lot of lands and not a lot of people that have an equal say in the Senate than, you know, a state like Texas or a state like California, where... Um, it's tough to make a, any moves in our government the way things are set up with the filibuster. You've got to, you've got to either have a bill that has bipartisan support if you're if you don't have the numbers in the House, or you have to you know win in the House, and then you have to somehow get you know a, a, a ten plus majority to withstand the filibuster in the Senate. And if you look at a majority of the the, the more land than people states, they tend to vote Republican and they tend to, you know, represent somehow, you're right, the same, they get the same two votes for their state that, that a California, that a New York, that a Texas, that a, um, you know, bigger states get, the Floridas, as much as I don't want Florida to have more votes, but still, either way, those states are getting the ability to block things that are going to help a majority of this country because you've got some closed-minded people who live on a ranch where they don't have a neighbor for 25 miles or whatever it may be. And it's it's not fair to the American people, and that system is not fair. And there's such a gap there. There's a representation gap in our country where um, the numbers aren't fair. The numbers don't work out in a way that are fair to the American people anymore. We're not, we're not a... 13 colonies that are becoming states, you know, times change. And, you know, the reason that the Bill of Rights existed is to be able to make those changes as things go on. But we've gotten into this thought process where United States history is no longer history. It's it's mythology. Right. And these these guys are 
or you know, you had your Greek gods for for the you know Greek people who lived thousands of years ago. It's almost like the people who live in America, like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, are like American gods, and you can't change what they wrote because they knew what was going to happen three hundred years later, and they're the experts. And like, no, like Thomas Jefferson was an architect, like he was a writer, he was a slave owner, like George Washington was a general, like he was not. I mean, he was the guy who literally had half the blood pumped out of his body on his deathbed because he thought that would help him get better. Like, that's the level of knowledge that we're dealing with. These guys did not possess the knowledge that we have today, and there are better ways to govern than what was established 300 years ago. But because we have this this gap in our thought process of this mythology, this American mythology that we've created about the Founding Fathers... Um, we can't seem to want to change for the better. So quick, uh, you're talking about gaps in, uh, in information, just a quick thing here. And I want to just ask you a trivia question. George Washington's teeth, what were they made out of? They weren't wood. Uh, I believe there were, uh, there were like another, there were other teeth. Like he, there were like used teeth. Uh, Slaves teeth. Yeah. So you think about when we were taught in school, you mentioned wood. We were taught that his teeth were made out of wood because, you know, goodness knows we wouldn't want our, you know, the, the founding father of our country to be known you know, for the cruelty of taking another man's teeth. But, you know, here's a, you know, the funny thing is uh, we just bought a car uh, in the last, actually, it's been a little over a week. And we brought our daughter along, and she's getting her license, which is why we bought the car in the first place, although the car's mine. And so she's wanting a vote of when, you know, what kind of car we're going to get and, you know, when we're going to buy the car. And I said, no, honey, I'm sorry, you're Puerto Rico. She's like, what do you mean? I said, you're part of the family. You just don't get a vote. And she is talking about how unfair this is. And, we, you know, Puerto Rico, it's funny, and Washington, D.C., they have more people than Wyoming. They have more people than a couple of other states as well. Yet they don't get even any senators, any representatives. Why don't they get that? Well, obviously Republicans don't want them to get into the union because there's four more Democratic senators. And, you know, they don't want any part of that. But where this all leads us, and this is where the poli-sci part of me gets going, is there's going to be a breaking point when people want these things. We want the nice things. We want the universal health care. We want better child care, or at least, you know, affordable child care. Uh, we want, you know, we want equal pay for equal work for women. We want, you know, autonomy for women's bodies. We want rights for LGBTQ. We want all these things and we're not getting them. So at some point, this thing is going to reach a boiling point and it's going to explode. Now, real life, I'm afraid of what that's going to look like. Now, from a historical trans standpoint, from an academic standpoint, it's like, this is kind of interesting, but from a real standpoint, this, is, this could get scary. I mean, we saw what happened 
you know, 2020 with all the, you know, with all the riots and uh, after, you know, the police brutality cases, that's going to look like a picnic compared to, you know, what's coming if we don't address those things that people want. Let me give you an interesting statistic here, Scott. There's been 103 countries um, that have had some sort of civil war between 1945 and 2009. Of those 103 countries, only 44 avoided a subsequent return to civil war. So that's, I mean, it's a pretty big sample size there. And I think when you look at, again, when you look back at history, things that weren't taught about the way we ended Reconstruction, um, we set ourselves up to have this gap, have this this belief gap, this um, return to wealth gap, everything with the way that Reconstruction was ended with the great compromise of, um, I believe it was, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes became president um, in exchange for the army and everything leaving the South so that way Reconstruction was officially over before it should have been. You didn't reset the country. You didn't reset and rejoin the country the way it, it should have been happening. And you you basically just, there was still a rift. There was still a divide that never went away. And, you know, it's, it's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war here soon, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it just shows just because the Civil War is, is over doesn't mean that ant- animosity just goes away or you automatically were like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. Like, No, that's just not how it works. There's still a chance that that other side fights back and, and, and takes power again at some point. You, you know, you mentioned the French Revolution. It's, it's funny because the French, since that main French Revolution, they had like three more after that within the next hundred years. Like, it can... unrest doesn't just go away just because there are a few skirmishes. You mentioned 2020 and everything that we saw there. That was just a perfect um, recipe for disaster where people were home. They had time off from work. They saw some outrageous things happening and and, and some stuff popped off. And, you know, the police came out and did what they always do, which is is make it worse and and look for some people that they can beat up and, and incarcerate and do what they do. But, it's going to get worse as we creep into, you know, this this more fascist state, which we talked about last week. Um, it's going to be real interesting the way that that the divides are there. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because I, even if if you're a democratic state, you still everybody still supports the police, and you're you're a bad person if you don't back the blue and you don't want to give the police as much money as they want. So it's it's interesting to me how that how that war would play out because the police are going to theoretically go with the Republicans as they normally do. If, if, if you saw a large portion of the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th are either current or active, current or former law enforcement or military. So, you know, it's just, it'll be very interesting as those, those gaps and divides in our country continue to escalate what happens there. Yeah. And you mentioned the great compromise of 1876 and I, and I love how uh, that's framed. Yeah, because we were talking about issue framing, you know, in the in the first episode. So basically, for those of y'all who don't remember that part of history, that was 1876, and that's when you know one of the states in the South accidentally sent in two sets of electoral votes, and so we didn't know which ones were the real electoral votes. So that's when they kind of strong armed, 
you know, the North and just sit there saying, okay, we'll accept your candidate as long as you pull out everybody from the South. Um, for those people, you know, who, you know, like John Oliver, I invite you to go look up if you haven't seen this one already. He did one on all of the Confederate moderate, uh, monuments and the kind of the history behind those. And actually, the majority of those were not built right after the Civil War. They were built in the 1920s. Um, in fact, they showed a color footage of one of them being finished in 1971. Ladies and gentlemen, I was born in 1973. So, I mean, this was almost in my lifetime that they are doing a monument, you know, to conf you know, Confederate generals and, and soldiers. And so basically these, you know, these monuments and just like the lynchings and everything else that happened in the South is a big F you to the African-American community, basically saying we have power over you. This is what we're going to do, you know, and you have the Ku Klux Klan, you know, cropping up, you know, around the same time. And of course, you know, Republicans love to point out that many people in the Democratic Party back in the 20s were racist. And it's like, yeah, just about every, you know, a lot of people in the country were. So, but, you know, that, that because so it's kind of, I put that in the backdrop of what you were talking about with revolutions that seem to, civil wars that seem to be repeating themselves. The French never had a workable solution until Napoleon came along and said, okay, I'll fix it. And what was Napoleon? Napoleon was basically another king. So they, you know, basically wound up with the exact same thing that they were fighting against anyway. And so the thing is, is that when this, uh, if there is such a revolution, which we keep being warned that there is one, the point is, is that there really needs to be an end objective in mind. What do we want? How do we get it? So if we decide that the Senate is not proportioned the way it should be, how should it be proportioned? You know, do we have an idea for that? Do we have an idea to fix this? Because we fought the American Revolution because the whole idea with taxation without representation. Well, if I'm in Puerto Rico and I'm in Washington, D.C., I'm being taxed and I don't have any representation. If I'm in California, I have the exact same representation as Wyoming. So I can look at that and I go like, eh, that ain't fair. And you got a point there. But instead of just blowing off a lot of steam and fighting with the police, police fighting on this side, you know, liberals fighting on this side. We need to have a clear idea of what the problem is and where we need to go to fix it. Absolutely. I think that's, I had a history teacher who used to talk about revolutions as, you know, when you had a large portion of people with a, wet diaper and an empty stomach, bad things were going to happen. You know, they basically referred to everybody as, you know, that sense a baby, right? They're going to cry. If you don't attend to the crying, then it's just going to get worse. Well, as a nation, we've been crying for like, I think since 2020. I mean, we didn't handle the pandemic given close to well. Um, you've allowed housing situations to get worse since then. You've allowed disinformation campaigns to get worse since then. You've done nothing on a national level to combat the fact that a whole party has been saying for three years now that the election that happened was a fraud. I mean, you've done very little to 
combat any of these issues. And any time the Democratic administration passes just the tiniest little bit of legislation that, like, is worded in a way that sounds like it helps people, but it doesn't really help people, like the, uh, you know, the federal, the federal marijuana pardons that Biden offered, like, that affects, like, 3,000 people across the whole country, because at this point, you know, we don't have federal marijuana busts for the most part. Those are done at the statewide level. So you're not really helping people. But Biden takes to Twitter and they take to the microphone and they talk about their accomplishment and how they're helping people get back with their lives and yada, yada, yada. They take so many victory laps. They take so many pats on the back because they don't have any other way to combat this thing. They don't have any other way to get actual good legislation passed because they don't have majority plus 10 in the Senate. They don't have the, the votes in the House to pass the things that he wants to pass. And, and so it's just this, this charade of, you know, weak legislation that is, is essentially toothless because to get anything passed at this time, you've got to get Republicans to sign off on it. And at that point, it's toothless. If the Republican is signing off on, on a Democratic bill in, in 2023's America, it means that it's not going to get anything done. But then they sit there and they take a victory lap and all that does is piss off the Democratic the, the, the Democratic voters who are, you know, sitting here saying, hey, we elected you to do something. Uh, I think the, the checks is a perfect example of, of that. Biden came, you know, ran on a campaign promise of everybody getting $2,000 checks. And then as soon as he gets into office, the, all of a sudden it was, oh, you already got 600 bucks of that 2000 I'm going to get you 1400 more. Like that was day one. Day one is the backtracking starting and that's that's why these these divides continue to happen. You know, you have when you had the, the the Hillary Clinton as your Democratic nominee in twenty sixteen and that automatically leads to people who don't want to vote for Hillary and they, they end up voting for Donald Trump, even though they knew I'm not really a Republican, I just hate Hillary. It's a continual refusal to acknowledge the people of America. And, and just continuing to do whatever it is that they want. I mean, I, I think you can look back to, I think, a perfect example, the 1968 uh, Democratic Convention. 67% or maybe even 76% of Americans were against the, the Vietnam War at that point in 1968. You had Richard, uh, you know, Nixon obviously was pro-war for the Republicans, and two of the three um Democratic candidates or pro-war for the Democrats. Like, where's the left in that? You know, the only one who wasn't was, was Bobby Kennedy, and he gets murdered, and next thing you know, you got everybody's pro-war. And so it's, you know, there's no true representation of society. I remember Nixon had a secret plan that was going to get us out of Vietnam, but he would never... But either way, I mean, either way, he was he was all for being there, and the... And the and, You've got 67 to 75% of society doesn't want to be there, but every single presidential candidate in every uh, convention wants to be there. Well, that's, and it's 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and things haven't changed. And that's why we're seeing the frustration here is we're not representing government. People go out and they do – you look at Ted Cruz, I think, as an example here. Is, you know – he doesn't care what's best for Texas. Ted Cruz cares what's best for Ted Cruz to get Ted Cruz screen time and to get Ted Cruz famous enough that when he eventually decides to hang up the old work boots, he's going to go make a crap ton of money on TV or as a lobbyist because he set himself up for 15 years of douchebaggery in the Senate. 
So at this point, these guys are just television characters hoping to get extensions, hoping to get you know as many episodes as they can before they get cut and have to go find a new show. I think where you know 1968 is very interesting, but for a different reason, I think because that election, um, you had a what amounted to a third party candidate, and that was George Wallace. If you listen to George Wallace, if you listen to old tapes of George Wallace, sounds very eerily like Trump. Uh, if you listen to old tapes, and, and George Wallace, by the way, for those who don't remember, was an out, out, out racist. Like he was the governor of, I believe, it was Alabama. It was it Mississippi yeah. or Alabama? Alabama. Alabama. He was the one who wouldn't let Ruby Bridges come to school, called her the National Guard to keep the first black girl from coming to school there, fought with LBJ over it, and used his racism to start a campaign. Like He was the racist vote. If you want to be really racist, you vote for George Wallace. Spiro Agnew uh, had very similar um, very similar, you know, verbiage when he was speaking. And so really what, what Donald Trump, what basically Donald Trump is, is like if you've, anybody's ever watched South Park, Eric Cartman, the makers of South Park described Eric Cartman as the junk in everyone's soul. That's basically what Eric Cartman is. If you pictured Eric Cartman 60 years later, that's Donald Trump. That's basically, I mean, Eric Cartman, if you watch the show, He's just manipulative enough to get what he wants. He's really stupid, but you know he, he manipulates people, gets what he wants. I mean, that's Donald Trump, basically. So to me, I've, you know, we've known, if you've paid attention, Donald Trump has not really changed since the 80s. He, I mean, he's been the same guy. And so that's why New York didn't vote for him. They knew who he was. So Donald Trump doesn't particularly bother me. What bothers me is that he holds up a mirror and you see America in all of its ugliness. And that's where George Wallace was. That's where Spear Agnew was. And, and we've spent, you know, last few minutes here talking about um, scumbags. And uh, Tim came up with a great idea for a feature that we're going to add to our show. And that is going to be our scumbag for the week. And since this is Tim's idea, I'm going to let him lead off with his scumbag. Yeah, so essentially what started this, uh, for those of you who are part of our Texas uh, listener base, your attorney general, my attorney general, Ken Paxson for the state of Texas, um, has done some illegal things. He's done a few illegal things. He had several people who worked in his office come forward as whistleblowers and you know, basically say, hey, these things were legal. You should have done this. He fired them. They sued him. And he did everything he could to suppress that lawsuit, push it back as far as it could until after the election, he gets elected. He then settles for $3.3 million of taxpayer money that we have to, as a state, pay out to these whistleblowers. And all at the same time, you've got our, our governor on Twitter on a daily basis talking about how, you know, we should be spending the most money possible on our children's education and uh, every student deserves more money. And then here we are wasting $3.3 million of taxpayer money because our head of our state judiciary division broke the law. And lo and behold, he's not going anywhere. He has already come out and said, you know, I look forward to continuing to 
fight for Texas justice every day. And the reason I settled this is just to make it go away so I continue to be the best state representative I can possibly be. And I don't understand how when you have been compromised at that level, how you can honestly sit there and look dead face to the to state that you're supposed to represent and say, I am above reproach, kiss my ass. Because that's what it is. That's what he's done. He has told the entire state of Texas to kiss his ass, and we're just supposed to deal with the fact that our attorney general, literally as a criminal, has been found to have done criminal acts and fired people because they told on his ass, and then he had to pay them because he shouldn't have fired them for doing the criminal stuff that he actually did. It's, it's outrageous, it's insane, and scumbag of the week award, Ken Paxton, with a runner-up to his wife for driving the getaway car as he was trying to be served a subpoena for his disgusting illegal actions and ran away from it, Angela Paxton, his wife and state senator for Collin County, drove the getaway car for the attorney general to not be served a subpoena. Scumbag and scumbag number two of the week. Tim, you are selling him short. I don't know how you could possibly do that, but you are selling him short because, uh, and obviously Texas voters, most of them didn't know this or didn't care, he has literally been under indictment every day he's been attorney general, which you want to talk about Robert Barron's. He's been, I mean, we're going on, you know, we're two plus terms and, and he hasn't gone to trial yet. And you know, he was under indictment for financial crimes, you know, for, I don't know the exact details, but I want to say it's like insider trading or something along those lines. And, you know, hasn't gone to trial has managed to push that, you know, we're, we're just going to let him. And, and do you realize how absurd it is for the number one law enforcement officer of your state to be under indictment? I mean, could you imagine the fire chief in your town being, you know, under indictment for arson? I mean, it's just, or maybe, you know, the, the lead guard at your bank who's a bank robber. I mean, it, it's just, it, it writes itself. It's silly. So, you know, Tim obviously gave him the first draft pick here. He, he took in Paxton, which, you know, I, I might have taken had it been available to me. So my pick is going to be Governor Ron DeSantis. So what has Ron DeSantis done? So Ron DeSantis, he has decided to ban, you know, any number of books in Florida, including now the latest one. He does not want kids in Florida to read about Liberto Clemente. Why? Because Liberto Clemente, not American. He is a person of color. So if we read about him, maybe we'll read about racism. Oh, we can't do that. But that's not what gets him on my list. What gets him on my list is that he has decided that he is going to go to war with Disney. Now, to, to kind of lay out what Disney means to Florida. In Texas, you would have to combine Bucky's, Whataburger, and HEB, and that doesn't even, maybe throw in the Dallas Cowboys. And that's how big Disney is for the state of Florida. Now, why is he going to war with, you know, with them? Does he suddenly, has he reached, you know, an epiphany of, wow, here's a huge corporation that could be paying more in taxes and we haven't been charging them enough. No, 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 no. He's no, no, come on. What he's at is they have a Pride Week. They sell a Pride Donut. 
And I remember because we went to uh, went to Disney World a couple of summers ago, and it was very important for our daughter to get a Pride Donut. So you know, we went to Disney Springs, where it's kind of like their version of a, a Kima waterfront for those of y'all who are in the Clear Lake area. And we went and we got her a Pride Donut. He has a week where and Disney has a week where they allow the LGBTQ community to come in and celebrate. Is this because Disney is particularly woke? I seriously freaking doubt it. Disney likes money. And Disney knows that, you know, hey, if we reach out to this community, we reach out to this community, reach out to this community, we give you your day, we give you your week. We're going to get so much money for that. They got $5 for us for a pride donut. I don't know why a donut costs $5, but, you know, hey, there you go. It was a pride donut. Um, and so he's decided that because you are acknowledging the LGTB community, we're now going to lift a lot of those tax breaks that we used to give to Disney. Now, I hate to break his uh, versus bubble here, but, you know, we were talking about cartoon characters in real life. I don't, I'm not sure Ron DeSantis is a real person. I think he's like, he's like a Bond villain. You know, I, I, he's on that level of just, you know, human depravity. But one of two things is going to happen. Either number one, Disney is going to squash him like a bug. Because I'm sorry, Disney, you know, they, we're talking billions with a capital B. They, 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 can, they can murder his political career in a minute. Or let's say he's successful and he gets them, you know, paying more money. They could leave Florida. They could you know, move shop. I would, I would assume they would have to move somewhere in the south because, you know, they like, you know, warmer weather. But, um, I mean, I would say they could move to Texas, but, you know, we have Greg Abbott, so I don't know if this is going to be such great shakes. But you know, DeSantis, you know, we're talking about a guy who, I mean, we're banning books. We're keeping teachers from having pictures of their family on their desk. We're not allowing kids to read about Liberto Clemente. And I remember reading this once, and this is, you know, absolute truth absolutely no society that has ever banned books has ever been on the good side anybody that wants to ban books you're not on the good side you're on the bad side that's Ron DeSantis and and the thing that scares me is that you know Donald Trump is basically a buffoon we talk he's Eric Carver problem with Ron DeSantis is Ron DeSantis might be more fascist Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter and so he could get some of those things actually through because he's competent and that's absolutely what scares me and that's why he's my scumbag for the week you got you you, you nailed it on the head with that last part because Ron DeSantis is I think most likely the presidential candidate in 2024 most likely 2028 because he's pretty young. But I don't see how Trump ever thinks he could win. But I don't think DeSantis has the balls yet to challenge Donald Trump in a primary. So we'll see how that plays out. But I, I do agree with you that Ron DeSantis at this point is one of the biggest threats to American democracy. Because for some reason, people like this guy. He is the Fox News darling. And, and uh, just like I feel like I... You know, I barely touched on the, the tip with 
Paxton, I, I feel like you barely touched on the tip with DeSantis because not even is he trying to get rid of some of those tax statuses. He's trying to take away certain uh, municipalities that Disney has where basically they, you know, they supply water and power and electric to a lot of citizens in that area at a discounted rate because Disney is, is paying the bulk of the water bill or the infrastructure costs for that area. So in this battle that DeSantis has fought against Disney, he is hurting the citizens of Florida directly by them having to pay higher tax dollars or higher property tax values to cover those extra costs of living that Disney was originally paying for. So you're not even really hurting Disney that much. Disney's doing just fine. They can they can sustain Ron DeSantis's tantrums just fine. As you mentioned, there's billions of dollars in those coffers. But the people that you're hurting are your voters, and then you make it out that you're going to fight against wokeness because that's what they want to hear. And DeSantis is sadly very good at crafting his message in a way that appeals to his base, and the base loves Ron DeSantis. And sadly, I I hope it's not 2024. I really do, but I, I for sure am a thousand percent positive Ron DeSantis 2028 is coming your way. Yeah, uh, you might be right about that. And of course, you know, Greg Abbott, our own governor, wants to compete with him. And so, you know, he'll probably find his way on this list, you know, one of these episodes, you know, basically like for sending people to, you know, Kamala Harris's house right there on Christmas Eve, just dumping them out. Because basically these two guys want to one up each other to be, you know, see who can be the bigger asshole. And unfortunately, a lot of people like that. Yeah, I think Abbott, in my opinion, they're both trying to fill that void that, Trump kind of had to go away for a little bit after January 6th. Like, people, for the most part, you didn't want to put Trump on TV. You didn't want to have an interview with him, and, and for good reason. Someone had to fill the void of awfulness that Fox News and OAN and Newsmax have gotten used to putting out there on a daily basis. And if it wasn't going to be the president... There's got to be some Republican governors out there that were willing to pass some terrible legislation or do some terrible things. And these two guys are both, you know, racing to the finish line, hoping they can be the first one to ring the buzzer. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, <laughs> it's, it's a scary spot to be in because I sadly don't think there's enough of a political savvy across a lot of our voter base to understand what, what the true end goals of someone like a Ron DeSantis is, and, and it's capital F fascism when you look at Ron DeSantis. But, Scott, I think this is probably a perfect spot to wrap up episode one here for the week, or part one of this episode, uh, and then we will be back at it again tomorrow uh, as we, we switch over to sports, as we get ready to talk a little bit about uh, some Houston sports and a little bit of Super Bowl talk and and, and everything else that, that's going on here in the sports world this week. Hey, and we uh, if you've watched, uh, listened to the show and you've enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear your comments. And if you have a suggestion for a scumbag of the week, please leave it in the comments and we'll, we'll think about it. Yeah, we, we would love if everyone would like and subscribe. Uh, give us that five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It certainly helps. Uh, a show up in some of the new podcast forums and, and new podcast feeds of people who are interested in, in either sports or politics, uh, or maybe, hey, just like you, a little bit of both. But 
Again, we appreciate everyone for tuning in for part one of the episode. Again, we'll be back tomorrow with part two. Uh, if you have any thoughts, you can always get me at Tim underscore Costello 10 on Twitter. Uh, and Scott, real quick, where can everybody find you? Uh, I'm at S Barzilla uh, on Twitter. And you can find me at uh, the Hall of Fame index.com and Battle Red Block. All right, that'll do it here for part one of this week's episode from the Snaphook. We look forward to being back with you tomorrow for part two. Until then, we hope you hit it straight and you have a great day.